It's about the tools we use. It's about the stories we tell. It's about how we change. It's evolution, baby. Today I'm super excited to talk with my good friend and colleague, Sebastian Siegel. Sebastian is an author, actor, writer, producer, pretty much he does it all. We've worked together on a number of projects, and I am uh, blessed to call him a friend. He's got a new book out called The Consciousness Revolution that we'll be talking about today. And to start things off, I wanted to read this amazing book review um, from George Tanabe from the University of Hawaii. Bang, bang, bang. So many insights fired off in rapid order, with each chapter being a standalone meditation inviting me to some unfamiliar place. Reminds me of how Japanese Buddhists chant the scriptures, which are written in Chinese, but sounded out phonetically in Japanese, resulting in a ritual language. This book's chanting is seductive and it's filled with stories and lessons to be learned, that is, understood. Siegel makes the language go all the way to a place it cannot go, and winds up pointing to a kind of mystery, deep within, far without, but real as he contends it is. I found myself wondering... Where did these words come from? The writer, the seducer of spirit? Uh, with that, let's jump into my talk with Sebastian. Awesome. Well, so excited to have you here today with me, Sebastian, um, to talk about your book, your life, all the various topics and interests we happen to share. Um, so first off, this book, one, congratulations. That's totally awesome. <laughs> it's a total surprise. You yeah. tend to uh, move pretty fast on things, and I don't see you for a while, and suddenly it's like, hey, I'm having a book published. <laughs> Thanks. It's pretty, pretty amazing. And uh, yeah, what I, one of the things that's got me excited to talk to you about it is um, you, like me, I think, have read a lot, a lot of books about consciousness and transformation. And, you know, sometimes some of them kind of start to blend together and feel a little the same. But this book, it definitely has got a vibe that's very fresh, very original, and very exciting, um, and a little different. So I was wondering if you could kind of talk to how this thing came to life for you. So the basics of how the book came to be, just in terms of the actions in the world, are I was working with a friend, uh, Andy Jones, a two-time Academy Award winner who was also working with me on the development of Tim Wilbur's book, Grace and Grit, in the screenplay. Um, he did the VFX for Avatar and for Jungle Book. And he called me and he said, hey, this friend of mine in Zurich in Switzerland is coming to town and he's an author and he's written a couple books on spirituality. His name's Pyramid and I think you guys really hit it off. So, you know, can I connect you guys? He's here for a few days doing an interview on a documentary film. So Pyramid came out and uh, he and his fiance came to my home and, and we hit it off. Wonderful guy. This is his book. Also, by the way, Herman Lester. Um, and his first language is German. So that is in German. And um, it's translated also into English. And he said, uh, after we connected, you know, I'd like to connect you with my publisher in Zurich, uh, Sabine Geiger, Geiger Publishing. 
um, Geiger Verlag Publishing. And then I connected with her and she'd written, uh, read some of my stuff on Huffington Post and some of the interviews and interview that you and I had previously done on human connection and intimacy for your film, uh, Share. And she said, listen, I think you would have a, a good audience uh, sort of that's uniquely interested, not just in psychology, but also in philosophy and spirituality. Would you like to do a book in German? <laughs> <laughs> That sounds great, yeah, because so many of the great philosophers are German. And uh, so then it, it sort of went from there. And then, and then here we are. <laughs> That's so great. And to be clear, you, you don't speak German, do you? That's correct. I don't speak That's German. That's so amazing. That makes it even better. So, yeah, you, you, you were able to channel your thing. <laughs> That's so great. You know, so many of the books that you and I have read also that, um, uh, you know, let's say Schelling um, – or uh, thus spoke Zarathustra Nietzsche, that these books have changed a little bit over time, depending on who the translator was. And that's why we'll always get these new editions of these very classic old books. And that, um, you know, being able to tell the tiny distinct differences between those things on how somebody interprets and carries the voice of that author. So the uh, translation of this was also a very pivotal and important thing you know, both for me and for, and for the publisher and for Geiger as well. And I'm enormously grateful for them uh, to, to publish this book and to have the confidence and, and faith in me to, to bring this book about. Yeah, that's so great. So exciting. You know, you said something about uh, having read so many things uh, that tend to be sort of similar, uh, you know, yeah. that are out there. And I think it's interesting that with so much content on psychology and self-help and spirituality and philosophy that there are all these uh, there's a lot of amazing content out there but so much of it gets homogenized down and reduced into these messages that then lose the uh, underlying necessities of what it takes to actually achieve those things right so that uh, you know I, I would see so many facsimiles let's say of anthony robbins where it's you know tony robbins is amazing and what he's done and to be able to get people to uh, engage in their own personal development and then you now see so many facsimiles of him people out there kind of just sort of duplicate it without their own sort of original take or, or or feel for it but just sort of regurgitating it for a new audience and um, as wonderful it is, as it is to get people to, to think positively, a lot of it ends up being reduced to sort of magical or, or, or mythical thinking. So that people jump in and they say, okay, I'm going to feel good today. And that's great. But then eventually that wears out. And then, and then there's an onset of, of depression and sort of confusion, thinking, well, why can't I just feel good now? Totally. You know, I'm enjoying this, this <laughs> in destroying my life. <laughs> good now. You know, people, the people want this state experience this instantaneous you know pill uh, or mindset that's uh, going to change everything yeah and it strikes me too that there's the the other direction of that i think we've seen uh, in a lot of ways too is sometimes a lot of this wisdom and spiritual lineages and traditions being robbed of some of the interior aspects and you know that the the term i've certainly heard is mick mindfulness of you know uh these practices and um great teachings from these wisdom traditions kind of being stripped of going the other direction, being stripped of too much of that and losing some of that, I think, uh, interior spiritual quality and artistry, honestly, of that, like, yeah, it's, it's not necessarily 
just do this and you're going to feel great forever. There's like an actual engagement with these teachings and learnings. Yeah, I think that that is really hitting the nail on the head, that there's this sort of sprizoturic uh, inherent irony into any kind of writing on genuine uh, contemplative practice or Zen. You know, in other words, to say that there is this fundamental um, expression of this Satori experience or awakening thing that we want to achieve so that in the, you know, in the expression of that we say, look, look, this is easy and this is fundamental and you've already got this alive in you and anyone can do this. And yes, that's absolutely the truth that we all have these access to these states of consciousness. However, that's what's being sold 99% of the time or 90% of the time. And it's all true. But underneath that, there is also then a discipline that is a requisite to bringing those states and those concepts and those modes of being into our everyday life. In other words, into our actual development, you know, to recognizing that development. And I think that's what, you know, certainly when, when you and I met, when you were, um, you know, living in and founding the Boulder Integral Center, um, that it was a matter of this is this discipline um, uh, of, of bringing those practices into a daily life and committing to those things and the discomfort which those yeah. things, which are inherent in those things. Absolutely. And I, I, I think that, love that you've keyed into that because, you know, the, the longer I've been in the consciousness culture around transformation and growth and development, that is part of, it's part of the trick is states are much easier to st- sell than long-term stage growth, right? Because state experiences you can have in a weekend, you can have in an afternoon, and there's like an immediate feeling of something having happened. So a lot of, teachings in my mind these days have oriented towards that, right? Giving people this incredible seminar awakening, but then you go home Monday morning and that's like where the work really starts, right? Like is, okay, now I'm back. I'm back. How do I bring all that? I just experienced all that wisdom into my daily way of being. And that, that's like you said, that takes discipline. That takes focus. That takes commitment. And I think that's something that often gets lost in the kind of, state chasing culture that has emerged and it's you know it's emerged for good reason because you know it traditionally i think and i think this might dovetail nicely into some other topics we have around filmmaking but it's just you know you used to those that were exploring consciousness back in the day tended to live in spiritual communities that were often like monasteries or they were part of a you know the the tribal leadership in their, in their tribe, and they were supported by other means so they could just spend the time doing the work and exploring the edges of consciousness in a way that wasn't necessarily sustainable if you're the one having to freaking go out and, you know, hunt and gather and farm all the time. But with our total shift away from that, you know, like so many of the great spiritual teachers we've known, they're like amazing insights and they can barely cover rent. You know, it's like this. So I can see. So I guess I'm saying that is I, I can see why this other thing has emerged um, around like being able to sell these potent experiences, but they don't necessarily translate to long term growth. Certainly didn't for me <laughs> in a lot of my workshop um, experiences. Yeah, I, it's you know, it's understandably, like you said, and I like the uh, the reference to um, the, the genuinely integral reference to the appreciation of those things and the understanding and seeing the emergence of those things and how wonderful it is like these 
um, you know, self-help gurus who might get somebody into at least a sense of personal responsibility to say, hey, I want to make my life better. I want to make the life around me better for those people that I know and come into contact with. And that's a great entry point. And then I see that danger, though, then in the you know, subsequently then on that path being misguided, the limit reaching those limitations where uh, a, a self-proclaimed, you know, a guru who has a yogic experience or, or a personal help individual has a, this sort of Satori experience then misinterprets or, or interprets that satori experience egoically you know in other words to ground that that gandhi has this uh, satori um, non-dual co- you know connective experience and then interprets it uh, as part of an aspect uh, or an emergence of connection as and with all being whereas the magical or mythical thinker is doing something and and sees a a, a rainbow or uh, <laughs> has a meditative, uh, you know, experience in a, in a yoga retreat and then says, oh, my God, I had this very similar non-dual or causal or, you know, whatever that is, that, that profound enlightened state experience. Yeah. It interprets it at the stage that they're at, which is a go of, I spoke to God or I had this experience that, that and now I, need to, now I need to express it and tell, every, tell everybody else about it. It has to go this way. And, and I think it's easy to spot out because the symptoms of that uh, interpretation at that stage level of development tend to be evangelical, right? Absolutely. Where people say you have to do this yoga or you have to do this, you know, this practice. And, and again, it, and as you, as you stated, like with uh, uh, retreats or with uh, uh, Burning Man, where you have a lot of wonderful state experiences that offer people an entry point into, you know, perceiving and exploring an aspect within that they might not otherwise, um, that then the pathology potentially lies after the fact, right, on Monday, where it's in mis- where it's interpreted uh, at a way that, that tends to be just just personal, you know, or just yeah. the or, or 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 the only path. Right. Yeah. Oftentimes uh, it worked for me. So that's probably what's going to work for everyone else. Right. That that's certainly a danger and absolutely the integration of, yeah, you know, this thing I've been thinking about considerably lately is kind of the double edged sword of like in awareness or insight insight, like so actual insight into the way of the world or how I'm acting like can be instant. So it's like, boom, Oh my God, I see my patterns. I, Suddenly I see the way I'm showing up in the world. I can feel how we're all connected, but like integration and actually changing our changing those patterns doesn't necessarily happen right away. Right. Like it's can be a long-term process um, that takes commitment. It certainly has for me. Um, And it's one of the things actually, you know, um, that, I've come to have great respect for around like in some ways it's easier to see in physical transformations. I've seen that's kind of often the metaphor I I talk to people about now of like, you know, you can't go from uh, lifting zero weights to like breaking world records in a week. Like no matter how hard like you think about it or master the form in your head, there's an actual development that has to take place over time in your body. And I think there's absolutely things like that for our spirit and our soul as well. Yeah. I think that some of the writers and the authors that I was influenced by 
that their fingerprints are in many ways in this book as well. Yeah. That whether it was um, Alan Watts or Romana Maharshi or Ken Wilber, that for me, the reading of those books and these three authors who are, I would say, the largest influence on me, um, that their books were not only cognitively insightful and precise and particularly Ken Wilber's with the um, fully comprehensive um, uh, inclusion of so many um, different practices and different minds and different sciences, but that also the actual reading of them was in, a, in some form for me a practice. Yeah. That uh, So I wanted to, in some way, with this book, really make it a book that's a practice. And the book is one-third short story, one-third philosophy, and one-third psychology, um, lyric. Uh, so I wanted to seduce the reader <laughs> into the process and then trick the reader into transformation. Absolutely. You know, essentially. Uh, which was my experience, I think, reading Alan Watts, right? That I, I would read stuff and I would say, God, that's amazing. You know, I can't put that down. That's so good. You know, and then by the end of the book, uh, or by the end of two books or three books or five books, that there was something that was resonating that was living in with, within me that I started to have this other type of deeper awareness. Uh, yeah. and it was my sort of first introduction into some sort of contemplative Zen practice through the cognitive, you know, through a, a, a strictly coherent cognitive, um, contemplative, uh, you know, means of examining life and purpose and who am I and what's going on, you know, a genuine um, ontological and epistemological approach to contemplative practice. Yeah, yeah I think the great, uh, the great writings like that, philosophical writings and spiritual writings are totally absolutely psychoactive right it's even just the very fact the very way we read them starts to actually change how we see the world and how we experience the world how we are in the world so that's cool you kind of dialed into that with the extra emphasis of yeah the 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 allure and potent um i think hook of stories like you did in your like your book has, which, you know, is so great because that's obviously one of the passions that first connected us in the world was around film and the arts in general and this idea of storytelling and how do we tell um, stories in a mainstream fashion, but that can lead people in to all this other stuff we care about, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, and it's become trickier with technology in some way in that 10 years ago, if you and I were to go see a film, uh, or read a book, like let's say it's a film, we might look in the newspaper and see an ad and read yeah. one review and think, oh, that looks interesting from the image that the director or producers or studio has chosen to attach to that film. And that image might convey a certain theme that interests us. So then we go see the film and we don't really enjoy the plot, maybe, but then we end up loving the film. Mm -hmm. And that's, this is this amazing immersive experience. Whereas nowadays, because the trailers are all over online, we look at it and if we don't like the plot, we might say, ah, I don't know, that doesn't look so great to me, so we don't see it. So then we miss out on the experience that we think we don't want, whereas that's what our soul really wants. 
You know, in other words, that's what archetypally that one image in the newspaper might speak to us and call out to us. And we go to see that thing. And it's like, you know, even 10 years ago, same thing with a book, right? That you might be at someone's house or someone might refer yeah. you and give you a book. And it would be so wonderful to say, why, what are you reading and how did you come about it? Whereas now, you know, because everything is, is, is procured, um, it, relative to what we already like that we're just being dished up online like let's say through amazon and ordering a book already the books that are in that wheelhouse and so we we have to be essentially you know in short astute about listening to those inner streams that say oh, what is it that i really want to read or what is it that i really need to read you know what is the thing that really is going to wake me up more or, or turn me on more, or turn me on in a way that I'm not yet, uh, you know, turned on in, in life. And so um, I think that uh, in, in a large part, this book is definitely, um, I'm tricking people in, in, <laughs> into reading it so that then by the end of the book, then there's this experience uh, like the review uh, that you, the, the kind review that you read uh, uh, by, by George Tanabe, that it is a, a practice as much as anything. And, uh, you know, I'm still offering up uh, histories of myth and, uh, and stories um, that uh, help articulate different, pro you know, different uh, themes, uh, Zen team themes, Buddhist themes, uh, classical, uh, you know, spiritual practices along the way. Uh, but ultimately, the thing is like a song or seduction you know, in that way. Well, yeah, it's the great, it's art, right? Uh, art that hooks people in via via the story uh, that's to me that's one of the most effective um i think and i think that's actually even more important now like speaking to even just what you just said is you know back in the day i think there was a lot more um what would be the word like accidental discovery right there was the you could actually walk into a bookshop and obviously there was curation in terms of what's on the end shelves, but you literally just might see an image on a book or a title and grab that and then have a whole experience having known nothing about that minutes before. And even to some regards, I think films when there were, you know, when it was back when towns just had a couple screens and it was like, well, we're going to the movies. It's not even so much. We're going to see this movie, right? It's just, we're going to the movies tomorrow night and you walk in and you have an experience. Um, Whereas now, yeah, everything is so, just so different to get people's attention. I think it does require that, that hook, that, uh, those stories, that art, that narration first to kind of pull, pull people in into, cause there's this endless flood of information, right? Like all the time, everywhere, but stories, I think certainly for me and good art that like pull can pull me into places I would never consciously even know I wanted to go. I think that's yeah. that's part of the excitement of that, like what you're talking about. Like, oh, I, I no idea why, but I saw the poster for that movie, and I got to see it, right? Like, I got to see it. Yes, the tone and the singer's voice when we hear the song, and uh, we hear it for years and years and years, and it means it's got a nice beat and it draws us in in some way, but we're not really there. And then all of a sudden, we are heartbroken, or we have this experience, or we lose someone, and then all of a sudden, that song, that one by you two, essentially that type of thing that we hear the lyrics then to that song or, you know, yeah. whoever the musician is and, and it, and it calls to us. It says, Oh my God, I get it now. This song, right. You know, like being, like being four thirteen or 12 and hearing a Marvin Gaye love song. <laughs> like, 
that's cool. I like that. You know, all these people seem to like that. And then you're 18 and you hear it and you're heartbroken. All of a sudden it means something else, right? Yeah. In terms of being consciously aware of what we want and intuitively aware of what we want, I I look at my bookshelf and I, I see all these books. Most of the unread books are books that I ordered on Amazon, like 10 of them at a time. And I said, I want to read all these, right? And then the, <laughs> the, 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 the number of books that are filled with notes and drawings and, and my responses are books that came to me in an entirely different way. You know, the authors that I've really come to, to fall in love with, that I've read you know, so, so much of their material, you know, came to me definitely through other means that I wasn't expecting. They showed up and I was ready. I was ready to hear that message at that time. And you know, I was ready to be awoken in that way. The student, so to speak, was already, yeah. you know, was ready for the, for, for the, for the new adventure. Yeah. That's great. And I, that's one of the things I love about um, <clears throat> not just your book, but, you know, from our experiences making your documentary, that's part of something you really honed in on. And always, I want to make a piece of art that generates conversation and actual connection through that piece of media, right? Like, oh my God, I just saw this thing. We got to talk about it. Or what do you think about that? Um, and that like, right, it's, it's the original, the most old school version of like viral content of, wow, I just read this thing and here it is. And you got to take this, you got to read it so we can talk about it. You know, I've got just, of course, those are the books that impact you the most, right? Because then there's an actual relational quality too of, or a story behind you, how you even found it. Because it's just more exciting to tell those stories, right? Then I went on Amazon and <laughs> clicked the button and it showed up, right? It's just not quite the same. So mm-hmm. I guess suggestion there is everybody, once you've read the book, make sure to leave it on the coffee table, generate some That's discussions. 100%. Right. <laughs> I think part of that, I think part of that, uh, job, I think certainly, you know, for whatever skill set I have as a storyteller or as a writer, is to unsettle the reader or the audience in some way. You're not in a way that's so uncomfortable, um, but in a way that, that we think, you know, that we catch ourselves, you know, that, that we're able to witness from a perspective that is outside of ourselves to say, ah, I'm showing up in the world in this way and I have a choice here. And maybe that choice, maybe there's a better choice or a deeper choice or a more graceful choice or a, you know, a more connected, uh, transcendent choice. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's a, you know, that entry point too is the same invite that we get to uh, a retreat that originally turns us on. And I just think that so, so often, uh, you know, the retreats or the experiences don't offer those things ultimately, you know, for so many people that they get then distracted, on, you know, once they go in, you know, whether, whether yeah. it's, whether it's doing uh, a ayahuasca or going on a yoga retreat or doing, you know, some sort of practice that ultimately inside, we all want that. We all want to be connected with, with one another. We all want to have a sense of meaning in this life. That's profound that, that we can express that we can articulate on a daily basis when, when it gets confusing, you know, what am I really doing here mm-hmm. going on? You know, why is this, is this life meaningful? What meaning do I make of it? And does it go on or, or, or when I die, is it just, is it, is it nihilistic in the way that it's just this random experiment? You know, I have clear thoughts on that and I have clear means to, to, to express that. It's something that I've dedicated a lot of my uh, reading and writing uh, and uh, time to that. I attempt to point at or tease at and express, I think in this book, which, which I think requires, uh, you know, as you were saying about the quick fix, 
um, uh, that, that this culture is so hungry for that I think there's this sort of, uh, uh, you know, to use a, young, a Jungian term, an antidromic um, thing that we're experiencing in sort of cultural evolution right now where we're, that's around us so often, this quick fix, yeah. that it's actually generating the exact opposite of that. You know, the people are becoming very sensitive to and privy to it so much so that we're seeing this uh, appeal to the rebel, right, uh, both politically uh, and, you know, very much in the music and, and popular cultural worlds. Not that we like that rebel or think highly of that rebel, but at least we feel like, oh, well, I'd rather be told the truth and, and, and it be lousy yeah. than not something I ascribe to, then be lied to and it be, you know, moral and packageable, right? And we're certainly seeing that politically and we're certainly seeing that, you know, in popular culture. And so I think that I'm hopeful in that way uh, in terms of uh, psychological, philosophical and spiritual content and writing uh, to say that I think that people are hungry for something that will demand some sort of practice. Uh, in other words, uh, there isn't, there is a quick fix for a state experience, yeah. but to incorporate that and integrate that state experience into a stage development, you know, to make that an aspect of the development of our being doesn't require reduction, but it requires extrapolation. In other words, it requires practice. It requires singing a song. It requires, you know, participating. And can we make that, that participation fun? And so I think the attempt with this book is to sort of uh, make a seductive uh, uh, exploration of that process. And so that by reading the book, there is this sort of seductive um, uh, quality of being able to uh, apprehend Zen uh, <laughs> or get in the regular state of experiencing Satori and then interpreting it in a way that is connective and collaborative. Yeah. Time up. I'm ready. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, that that's great, though. I think, the, the, yeah, that thread even makes me think about. So, one of the topics I certainly like to talk about on uh, this podcast is, you know, the namesake of the podcast, do the evolution, and this idea of evolution and what it means in our currently unfolding culture. And one of the things that does strike me about what you're just talking about that's certainly been on my mind a lot is and it's it's just nuts like it feels like every day it's getting more and more intense um in some some regards like the the the, the ken and some of the people we study tend to talk about you know postmodernism really kind of exploded in the 60s but it actually feels like it's hitting our culture now where pretty much everything at any point is nearly a perspectival of right like what is actually true you can read an article on anything and someone else will show you the scientific research almost for the opposite right like it's getting crazy and then we have all the fake news coming in and truth is taking on such like a it, it's disorienting like even for me uh, who tries to you know kind of keep up on things and like I, I see a thing and then I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. And then a day later I see a thing that's like, yeah, that article was totally BS and it turns out that was all wrong and just clickbait. And I'm like, whoa. But the point being what strikes me and what I feel like is so important in terms of what you're talking about in your book and this shift 
to like actually taking the practice of transformation seriously is, you know, certainly when I kind of got on the transformational bandwagon, this idea of like being mindful or awakened um, was exciting. Like, oh my God, I'd love to, you know, what a cool thing to have or be or, but it strikes me as just like more and more, it's a necessity, like to actually be able to function and serve and create and be um, effective in this culture that's emerging around us. The ability to be focused and disciplined and like stay with something and be mindful and control, you know, kind of where your attention goes is going. It, it no longer seems like a luxury to me, but like a, oh my God, like this is going to be a crucial skill moving forward. And so it's inspiring and exciting and somewhat of a relief that people like you are taking up that cause to get it in, get it out there and to have people take this seriously in an engaging way. But like, Hey, like it's not going to just happen in a second, right? Like this has to be a way of life in some regard. Wow. Yes. That's on point. You think about uh, what the capacity, let's say of early primates, uh, like let's say an ape, an ape can, can uh, demonstrate the capacity for sign language. Right? An ape can think, uh, you know, even conceptually with, sim- with symbols, uh, can sign names and, and do all these number of things. So what's the difference here, right, between us? You know, an ape certainly has this sentience of missing and, and, and loving and uh, fear and affections and, uh, you know, enormous capacity for emotion and complex thinking. But how long can an ape hold its focus on something specifically, right? An instant, a few seconds, you know, uh, you know, if you, you stretch that out to the, you know, the limit, right, of that, however many seconds, etc. Whereas what is the capacity of a human being? And I'll, I'll, we see that, right, in any kind of meditative practice, which anyone experiences at the beginning of a meditative practice, sitting down and just focusing on the breath or focusing on, you know, any number of meditative, you know, any a number of meditative practices where the focus is challenging at first. It's a few seconds and then the mind wanders off and then maybe it's a minute and the mind wanders off. And then it's, you know, the average person is in this realm of just a few minutes, right? Which is exemplified by our uh, cultural uh, technology, by our social media, you know, that of of an Instagram or the limit of, uh, 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 you know, in, in seconds for a video or the limit of a tweet in characters, you know, that most people are in that sort of 30 second, one minute, two minute realm, which isn't much beyond an eight. That's the bad news. Here's yeah. is that with the work on it, right, with the development of really doing a, a practice that's disciplined and that's clear with clear parameters that over, you know, the course of weeks, months, years, that then the focus becomes so powerful. Right. And then we see that in, in these, you know, in these exceptional um, you know, teachers or authors like, you know, you, you know, people will look at Gandhi or Martin Luther King and, and say, gosh, you know, you, the number of people who will cl- quote, let's say Martin Luther King, Gandhi in particular online, you know, and, and yet they're not living from that space at all. But in yeah. that, they just identify with it. In other words, they're having a sort of cognitive state experience of relation that makes sense to them. Right. You know, hate is, uh, you know, too much of a burden to bear. I'm going to, I'm going to stick with love. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, is that living from that space, right? And the difference is, is that in a few seconds or in a minute, that person gets it and feels it to the bone. It's real. It's true. It's not bad. It's not wrong. It's not, but it's just not as evolved, right? Whereas you have this individual who is writing this, who is saying this, you know, uh, 
who has who is giving a daily practice of action and writing and expression and showing up in society on a number of ways just with that focus that it is recognized to the core of their being right and then that's when you have these individuals like gandhi or martin luther king and they shine in that way because of that that sacrifice right and and i think that there's always a you know for me you know the practice of you know since uh um you know from my whole life exploring various meditative and contemplative practices i always felt like the difference is the difference was in the teachers um that i would see or the lineage holders of various practices it came down to focus and proper focus mm. right you know and it's like that you know you'll have a, a i've had you know meditative practices where i'm sitting let's say in kind of uh, you know classical this is sort of zazen you know practices whether it's Tonglen or mindfulness or breath or I am or etc. That then all of a sudden, right? It, it's a year or two years or five years in with some of these practices, and then then bang, this major information that I've been touching upon, that I've been teased with, all of a sudden I feel this embodiment to it that starts to show up regularly in my life. Yeah. Right. Whereas early on, I get the embodiment, but I only get it from moment to moment. Mm-hmm. And that after enough time, it starts to run underneath. There's this quiet, you know, that's an underlying chord of uh, an underlying, uh, you know, witnessing an underlying uh, resonance that starts to carry over from so much practice and focus. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I, I was recently, uh, it reminds me of, I was with, sitting in circle with someone there his expression of it was you know we're vibrational creatures so as we start to vibrate at a frequency other people feel that and just said a simple way i i I love how you were speaking to that is like as it comes into our body and we start moving from this place to it's magnetic right other people can feel it even if they don't understand it yet i know certainly that was some of my most potent experiences was being around People who had stayed on their stayed with their practice, been in their focus, and it's not like a it's not just a cognitive like oh my god they're so awakened. It's like wow I like I can actually feel a difference of space when I'm around them, and like what is that right? And that's that same kind of I think magnetic seduction that you were even talking about in terms of what you're um, pulling off with your book and your presence in the world, you know, just introduce countless people to you. And it's always great how they're like, Oh my God, like he's so great. It's just like, so, so inspirational and so fired up and like that radiates out, you know, it's contagious in a, in a, in a beautiful way. That's so beautifully expressed um, that uh, awareness of presence of this expansive space um, uh, that an individual brings to a room. Um, and that is interesting that someone might come to a, uh, you know, to the practice that you conduct in Los Angeles of, of circling that they'll stay, they might step into that and say, Oh, well, this is great. This is good shit. Right? I want, I want some of this and not exactly knowing what it is. You know, and then going out in the world and saying, no, 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 you got to come to this thing. It's the best. You got to come to it, right? It's my thing. Like, I'm high as a kite on that. And then eventually showing up enough times and engaging in it because the practice that you lead uh, is interactive and is engaging on so many 
levels that inevitably over time, the person then starts to see that uh, show up. And that expansion of space that you described is a, is a, is a really wonderful way to uh, describe it. It reminds me of, I think, in, I don't know, as a kid, uh, I remember seeing the movie The Time Bandits. Right? <laughs> yeah. It's like, you know, just thinking about all these portals, right, in the world, you know, and it captured my imagination uh, at that time. But thinking about these portals of space, right, as, as you describe there, that there are these, uh, you know, this, these through this type of embodiment and discipline and focus, it really does make life much larger and much more vast and much more open. Right to to opportunity and spectacle within the most minute uh, things and details, and it makes life more beautiful. And I and for me, it, like in a great way, it makes practice easier. You know, that mm-hmm. that's the other thing too. Whether it's and it's why, like I said, you know, I'm so drawn to the arts like you. I'm so drawn to powerful teachers like you. Um, you, you know, you can. <laughs> And I've had this conversation oftentimes with myself, you know, in the past, where it's like, or or friends, like, oh yeah, you know, like meditating, it's really great for you. It does all this, 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 and this, you know, and you should really commit to it as practice. And what? No, you know, like it's it's hard, but to go into a room and be around someone who you, there's actually a, a felt body experience of like, wow, energetically it feels different when I'm around this person, or when I'm watching this movie, or hearing this song, or reading this book, and my practice isn't there yet, but I have like a glimpse, right? It's like a, 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 that state experience into like, oh, okay. Now I know why, like, this is what's going to make it worth it to go sit on the mat all that time or to go to the gym all those times or to learn to play that guitar, you know, whatever that discipline you're really going to dive into to burst through um, will be. And having those little tastes uh, you know, it makes it so much easier for me as a reminder of like, cause you know, not every morning's like that. Some mornings it's like, Oh my God, is the timer just going to go off? I'm so, I can't, I can't do this. Right. You know, it's grinding other mornings. It's like, wow, that was a quick 45 minutes or, you know, who knows, but it's part of the beauty of practice to me and having those little tastes of uh, that state and that stage that actually does become in the body and like permanent. Uh, ahead of time just yeah it really strikes me as that's something again i see manifesting in so much of your work thank you i think that the uh practice let's say in those two examples whether it's a meditative practice or a great metaphor and also meditative practice physical exercise that the challenge the uh, ability to focus is developed and sharpened and honed over time and that the, the days and the moments that it's the most difficult become the most important days to do it because it's those days where if we can sit through and endure those days and find something in those days then then the days where we're going with the with the flow where we're going with the stream mm-hmm. then we really can dive deeply and go far uh you know and go beyond you know, it's those tough days where just everything feels, the body feels heavy. I don't want to climb this hill. Or I don't want to lift this thing. Or I don't want to, I don't have it. But if we can find the way then, you know, then, then we can find, uh, you know, then it's, then it's much easier on those, you know, on those other days. Uh, and so I think that the part of the, that's part of also the, the discipline, I think, that gets missed out on in a lot of uh, uh, practices where 
people want it to be so comfortable. You know, come on this retreat. It's a beautiful place in the world. You're going to stay in the best hotel. You're going to do the best thing, you know, the best food. And we, and, and we sign up and then, and then we go. And then it's like, you know, like kind of easy yoga and nice talking. And that's fantastic. Yeah. Like that's great, right? I think, though, that what we're yearning for inside, you know, which can be accompanied by all those accoutrements, is this thing to say, all right, we're going to be scared just a little bit. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be a little bit uncomfortable at moments. Because then once we have the courage to say, okay, look, this is going to be uncomfortable. I'm going to exercise today. It's going to hurt. It's supposed to hurt. Yeah. Right? And I think that that's the major paradoxical uh, misinterpretation or misunderstanding of, of kind of spiritual engagement today is that spirituality is this warm hug and feel good. Totally. Right. And it is the exact uh, opposite, right? That it is something that is shattering. It's the thing that turns the caterpillar into the butterfly. It's the thing that our entire world gets completely flipped on its head and turned inside out, right? That's a genuine spiritual practice, you know? And so for me, I find that there's a little bit of, uh, that I have to bring enough salt to the hunt, bring enough discomfort, you know, to the pleasure. I have to bring enough pain to the joy in order to keep it honest, not just to make it integral, but in order to keep it real, you know, in order to keep it true just to the nature of life. And if I look at that metaphorically in the world, I think about all great experiences, even, you know, the very most fundamental um, process of, of human life, of the, the birth of a baby, right? Why is this mother, why is this woman so bound to this child, no matter what the child, most of the time, no matter what the child will do to the mother later in life? It's that this is the most beautiful, spectacular thing. And yet the pain is ineffable, right? For the physical body to be ripped and torn, right? Like this, to bring a human being into the world is so spectacular that it allows for this complete destruction of any kind of sense um, experience that was previously known. And that's how women describe childbirth, you know, in that range, you know, that it is spectacular in this sort of, in this sort of ineffable way. Um, and I think that that is uh, on a sort of, uh, you know, in some sort of um, metaphoric way, uh, requisite to a genuine uh, spiritual practice. Uh, yeah, I totally resonate with that all. <laughs> I just love it. And yeah, it's fiercely part of certainly w- the spiritual life I believe in because yeah the 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 uh, the feel good only stuff it's just uh, it's such a turn off to me in some ways because you know and I, like we talked about the you have that experience of a, when it's going well it's great but no matter how realized or there's always going to be a day where things just aren't right every state is temporary every state passes and the more I've like tried to cling on to just that, that positive connected upper thing, the more painful it is when it goes away. Right. Like, uh, I want that. And then the very act of clinging for it is what prevents it versus. Yeah. I'm, I'm totally with you in terms of the like discomfort practice. Like I think that's one of the greatest things you can do in terms of a spiritual practice, because it's like the real practice is Can I just be okay with whatever is in this moment, whether it's Kumbaya or Oh, contracted, right? Like, because both are going to come. So it's more like, can I just embrace um, that feeling of both? And <laughs> totally, I had to, <laughs> cracks me up because, you know, I just came back from my third burn and the 
the it's it's such a hilarious experience to me there of like to me part of the joy of that place is it's not comfortable like the whole point is it's physically emotionally vibrationally challenging to be there like you you know you have to be on point you have to be okay with discomfort but if you can be okay with that so there's so much beauty that you can then witness right and just i uh, moments certainly in my burn and people i interacted with it's just like the yeah you know there's two realities here yes it's uncomfortable are you going to spend the week focusing on that or can you just be okay with oh my god it's dusty and i'm hot as shit but look right like say that same practice i i love that you uh spoke to that and you know a friend was just telling me um we were talking about cold showers you know which is one of my favorite topics about that that are really hot now but he's like yeah you know i used to read uh the james bond novels and even back in those james bond would like apparently end every shower cold really He'd flip it cold right because to learn yeah. to be with whatever sensation was there like mm-hmm. in that in some ways is certainly in our modern storytelling culture that is probably the pinnacle of masculine awakening we see in most of our stories is whatever comes at our hero just right there can handle it right like just okay with the pain with the whatever just navigating it forth like in a calm equanimous way in some regard gosh man that's a great i didn't know that about the bond thing and i'm such a fan of the of that of that uh story the bond story um when i when I first moved to California, I rented a room at my grandmother's place and then the uh, water pipes, you know, whatever ran out. Yeah. Uh, so then there was a period where I would go downstairs in the morning. It was winter in Los Angeles. So it's not, you know, cold, but the water in the hose and the garden hose was, was really long hose would be really, really cold. Right. <laughs> I would go down at like five in the morning or whatever. And I would take what I would call a rocket shower right? it would me into life that i'd go down and, and i would shower and, the, and it would be like uh, whatever 38 or whatever 40 something degrees outside but then the water would be also really cold that it, it would just instantaneously brought me you know all my senses just you know biologically and physiologically all my senses were were awakened and i got so hooked on that that then that was where I decided all right, the end of every shower had to be ice cold for me. You know, yeah. so that was to the point where, you know, it became, you know, very soon after that to the point where it's like, as long as there's cold water, you know, yeah. it's okay. You know what I mean? But if, but if I, if, if I go somewhere and there's no cold water, you know, that's the problem. That's great. <laughs> this, this water in this is not cold enough. <laughs> uh, I love the idea of you writing Yelp reviews for <laughs> the water just wasn't cold enough. <laughs> that's the problem with the four seasons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, beautiful. So I uh, slight change of topic here, but I got, I got to know more about this. Um, so the rumors are you're writing your next book on a vintage typewriter. Yeah. Do tell about the typewriter and about uh, how does that, that process must just be crazy. Like I, I used a typewriter maybe twice in my life. So I have a, a bit of comprehension, but I, t- tell me what's going on. Yeah. yeah this, um, you know, I have it here. This, uh, the typewriter I'm using is a 1936 Remington Rand. It's a beauty. Quality, wow. Makes great sound. Um, I think about all the great, you know, we, we go out, we see all these incredible books uh, that we have access to now on Amazon. And, and 
particularly if you're interested in philosophy and psychology, you think about, wow, the number of books that you might order that you might read that were written on a typewriter, you know, is sort of amazing, right? And we think about some of the greatest writers of our time, right? From Socrates and Aristotle, Plato, and bringing it forth to Shakespeare. And then, you know, you look at like after time, you know, biblical uh, yeah. writings, you know, you think these things were written by hand, right? And then by typewriter. And then, you know, and still the majority of our great writings, in other words, took, uh, and I think it's pertinent to this topic of discipline, that it took a certain willingness to commit to the expression, right? And um, the pleasure that I'm finding in writing uh, this next book um, on by typewriter is that I've got to really think through the statements before I put them onto the page. And that also I don't get the immediate uh, support um, of the algorithms of spell check and um, structure and etc. Yeah. Those algorithms that are generally supportive, but that might not be the best for ultimately what I'm trying to bring out, what I'm trying to say. Um, so I think that that process requires uh, s slowing the expression down uh, completely to get to something that is, you know, really, really, what is it really that I want to say, you know, in this, on this page and in this, in this verse. Um, so I think it's helpful in that way. I think it's also romantic. I like the feel of it. Um, I like the tactile feel of the keys and the sound. Um, I play, I played chess since I was a kid and I, I I'm not able to play online. I'm just <laughs> yeah. I have a tough time uh, establishing a meaning for the game online because it seems to me to be just abstract. Yeah. I'm not to say that that's any less real, but I like the gross form of this manifest world. Uh, I like to sit across from a person and feel the physical pieces on a chess set. Uh, it makes me feel more grounded uh, in this very real uh, experience. Um, and so I think the typewriter uh, is doing that. I'm experiencing it anyways that way. Uh, you know, that it does that for me, that it, it feels a sort of romantic, you know, people talk about loving letters and I, you know, I write letters and I'm one of the only people that I know, right. That write letters, as you know, um, uh, I, there is a, uh, and, and the term romantic is I think the right term in the way that it gives us time to respond to something and process something without immediacy. Yeah. Right? That that it allows for certain effectiveness um, because of not being able to be efficient. Right. That you get a letter and you hold it and you read it. And if you know you can only reply by letter, well, it might sit with you for a day or two or whenever you get the chance to reply. Right. And if you're going to reply then by letter, you've got to really think, well, what is it that I really want to message to this person? What is a statement that I really want to say to my brother, my friend, my lover, et cetera, my child, my, you know, et cetera. Um, whereas the response in email, um, which is fantastic, you know, by, yeah. you know, by, by, I mean, it's amazing, right? But what it steals from us is then is that it, it oftentimes hierarchically puts immediacy and efficiency above effectiveness. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the dangers in our culture. So I was really doing this as, as an experiment, um, you know, for that. But also I think it's beautiful, too, the, the, the typewritten 
letters. So in this book, there's going to be, it's a series of, of uh, letters and stories that uh, the images uh, of the letters, I'm photographing every page. Oh, great. Short stories. And then on the other side, it will be printed in the book. So, or let's say the online version will be yeah. an image of the typewritten, uh, you know, with the signature, etc. And then on the other side, it'll be maybe a preface if it, if it, if it needs one. And then, the, and then uh, you know, the story itself as well. So that the person uh, can see what those, what the type uh, looks like. And then also the thought process of and changing it as I went. Yeah, that makes tons of sense. That's, that's super cool. I love, yeah, I love that. And what a perfect medium to be birthing it on, um, which, you know, in some ways is typewriters are great because they were that really unique, I feel like, bridge between the fully manual and what is moving more and more towards like disembodied automatic, you know, like the, even the idea of a keyboard going away as people just dictate their stories and, you know, stuff comes out. So like that moment in time of the typewriter is like such a union of two worlds of, you're still going linear though, right? Like, and as soon as it's on the page, you can't just, so I just love, yeah. What a cool, um, yeah, just, it, even just the feeling of a typewriter, not that I have one in front of me, but I can think about it and I feel more embodied, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's such a visceral thing compared to a keyboard, you know, but the weight of the keys and the clack and the, oh, it's so great. Makes me want to go buy one. <laughs> it's, you know, the, the short form uh, expression that has changing essentially all languages yeah. uh, that we see in the English language here um, with uh, Twitter and uh, with that dictation with Siri essentially is that the, the people are, uh, you know, many people don't know how to spell. Yeah. Right? Don't know how to, you know, and, and miss and don't know how to use words that don't really know what they mean. I, I think, you know, very often you see it all the time, you know, apostrophes, uh, you know, not being used. And, and so then, which is fine. It's not important. Right. Um, in terms of the expression of the message, but then over time, right. Not doing those small things and starts to deplete the language to such a degree that it becomes only short form. Right. In other words, it's okay to digest that material, but if all we're watching is the short form material, pretty soon we teach ourselves to reduce our capacity for focus. And that's the dangerous and the addictiveness of the smartphone, of the iPhone, of all of these things that people will wake up and immediately go on to whatever that is, Instagram, Snapchat, et cetera, Twitter. And then their dream is lost. In other words, the sleeping for however many hours prior to there's this message of emotion of thought of subconscious material, this unread letter that is inside of the individual that instead of waking up and, 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 uh, receiving, uh, this world and, uh, this gross world and experiencing that and seeing it for the first time and interpreting how we feel, what is it really that I feel in this moment? Immediately we're like, ah, what did this politician do? What does this musician do? What did this other individual do? What's going on out there? Right. And I think that that's very dangerous. And I think that that is the, the cultural pathology that's occurring uh, amongst all the wonderful things that are occurring yeah. culturally. That's the pathology that is really the danger of the future. And I think we're going to start to see, uh, and we are already starting to see, um, you know, enormous challenges with dissociation and sort of new faces of depression because of that. Totally. Uh, yeah, what a monumental shift. And yet again, yeah, even more reason for practice, even more reason to come back to these um, 
teachings that have you know emerged around the world through so many different voices that you explore it at this time in our lives like it's yeah again not just a luxury but more and more a necessity for like how are we going to move forward with meaning and impact and as opposed to just getting right in some ways the the way um yeah this like instant constant influx of information that is literally emerging in our culture it it feels like the manifestation of monkey mind right like what was just in our heads before is now like literally things are pulling our attention you know out of our pockets uh, billboards ads just like stimulation is going up and the ability to just hone in more important than ever yeah wow you see it too you'll uh, you having a discussion with someone at a public place, let's say at a restaurant or a coffee shop and a siren goes by or the sound of a car crash or the sound of a, whatever the a screeching and immediately people's attentions uh, turn, yeah. you know, and, and, and it's um, indicative of what is someone really focused on? Is it just new stimulus? Or is it the depth of stimulus, right? Because we'd be having this conversation. It doesn't matter so much what occurs outside, whether it's the ringing of a phone um, or the screeching of a wheel or something like that, right? I'm, I'm, you know, we're honed in here. Uh, I, I think that that's part of the, uh, the pleasure that I uh, take in reading physical books, that I'm one who doesn't read online uh, to support my discipline and the focus of getting lost in the book. You know, I read a screenplay, same thing. I print them out. I don't read them online. And then if I'm writing in the process of writing uh, my first book, I turn off email, I turn off everything else so that I am just locked in with this thing that there is no other, you know, there is no other form of, or I limit at least the other forms of of stimulus unless they're chosen. You know, um, Google's an amazing thing, right? And And searching the internet is an amazing thing if it can be focused. Right. That uh, I was working on this point of the adaptation of Grace and Grit. And there's a a section where John Denver, the musician, is is in this true story. Uh, And I was thinking about the lyrics in one of his songs um, that he sings at this event in Aspen in the screenplay, which occurred in real life. And. So I wanted to find the lyrics to a number of his songs. So I go online and it's like late two, three in the morning. I've been working like 16 hours or something writing. And so I've turned on uh, Google now to search. This is going to be very valuable. And I'm looking at his you know, lyrics and I'm like, some of them are really hitting home with me. And I'm like, oh, this is fantastic. And I'm thinking, yeah, lot, when, when did I first hear a, a John Denver song? And I thought, gosh, I must have been, I don't know, I must have been, five years old and I was probably in the back of a pacer right and, and you know and I was I don't know and, and maybe in, in Hawaii or something and I was thinking I thought geez you know and then so I started to look over next thing you know I'm shopping for a pacer <laughs> <laughs> yeah sure <laughs> <laughs> you know and then I realized what, is it? what am I doing you know, yeah. I found this pacer in South Texas. It's like the only one left in the United States that's in running condition oh it's still God. original <laughs> I'm trying to write a screenplay. Totally. Yeah, but that's how it happens. <laughs> so um, it's almost like a, you know, having a mental, being able to, uh, in the prefrontal cortex, right, the general of the brain, being able to say, I'm going in this thing with this very clear intent. Yeah. And I'm going to allow myself some sort of liberation playroom. But ultimately, I have a very clear 
objective, uh, you know, in terms of process, you know, or in terms of connection, you know, in terms of articulation. Uh, and, I, and I think that that is um, um, a wonderful exercise of, of writing. Well, it's been wonderful chatting with you, brother. So great to hear some insights into your process and everything you explore in your book. Um, First off, what's the best way for people to follow up with you and your work and reading more about the book and everything you're up to? Thanks. So it's, it's on uh, Amazon. It's with Geiger Publishing. Um, it, we're, I'm discussing with uh, a few uh, U.S. publishers right now. Um, I have a practice here in uh, Los Angeles, California, and that website is deeplyconscious.com. Also, beyondthepsyche.com, and it's a psychotherapeutic uh, practice and consultation. And um, there's a lot at that side. The book is also uh, links to the book are also available there. Awesome. So people can reach me there also. Cool, and I'll put links to all that in our show notes as well. And um, so, just the last thing before I let you go, I wanted to read this really great quote um, from the amazing. Marianne Williamson. And then if you're open to it, I was wondering if you might want to do a reading for your book to uh, send people off with. Great. Sound good? Great. Great. So check this out. Sebastian Siegel draws insights into the beauty and complexities of the human condition with an inspiring and original voice. It's from Marianne Williamson, who uh, kind of knows what she's talking about. So that's, that's pretty, <laughs> pretty awesome. And yeah, I thought it'd be cool if we can maybe actually give everyone a taste of some of your writing, if you'd like to dive in. That sounds great. You know, I think, you know, one of the things about Marianne uh, is she is such a powerful speaker. And I think one of the things that's very unique about her in this day and age that a lot of people are not doing is that her discipline and her integrity yeah. for what she teaches is exceptional. You know, essentially she is uh, um, delivering and offering a, a spirituality where the rubber meets the road. I mean, the, you know, the, she is um, embodying her, you know, and has fully embodied uh, all of her work and the things that she's in teaching. So I enjoy her as a spectacular teacher, um, uh, friend, author, writer. Um, you know, she's been, uh, she's extraordinary. Uh, Wonderful. All right. So uh, the images in the book are by Cameron Gray. And um, he is a brilliant. You can see some of them. That's a very, very popular. Nice, yeah. Um, he, he did a lot of these sort of transcendent, connective type of images that really spoke to me. And um, there's one in each chapter, and there's a chronology to all the images. Oh, wonderful, yeah. So they're about emergence, and uh, the images kind of coincide with what that each chapter is sort of about. And they're incorporated in the sort of poetic and philosophical sections to uh, help the reader orient with what's occurring in those abstract sort of more ethereal sections, um, which are also supported by short stories. So in chapter three, uh, the title is The Second Satori and Becoming the Party. And I'll just two short sections from uh, this chapter. That's the image for chapter three. Wonderful, yeah. 
<clears throat> okay. When I was three years old, we had recently moved from Oxford, England to Hawaii, where my father took a job teaching comparative religions with a specialty in Indian religions. Many of my early memories are from sitting in on his lectures. One morning, he was lecturing on Taoism and Zen. He was describing Wu Wei, the concept of action without force. Wu may translate from Chinese as without, and Wei translates as do, govern or act. The concept popularized as non-action means without force. When you hold the petal of a flower in your hands, if you hold it too loosely, it blows away, too tightly, and you crush it. Wu Wei, the theme of non-forcing, exemplifies grace and the paradox inherent in actualizing most anything. Ignore a relationship, and it fades. Force it, and you destroy it. It holds true even with thoughtless or involuntary actions. Signing your name, kissing, swallowing, breathing, sexual arousal, saying hello, or relaxing your bowel. Getting a cat to come over is about coaxing. Do you ever get the sense after something has occurred that it was inexorably meant to be, and that if it were to occur across a million varieties of this universe, a million times over, that it would generate that many variations of the same outcome each time? Like destiny and the hand reaching out to you. When the ears are open and the mind is present, the creative force of life subtly allows for a groove of beauty to be etched into time. This is the posture and nature of creativity. It's the way a delicious cake is baked. It's how a bird gracefully drops out of the air to land on a branch. It's the way a baby is made. It's the path and the process of ultimate mind manifesting both as you and through you. In an effort to epitomize Wu Wei to the class of 200 students, my father extemporaneously demonstrated the paradox by suggesting that if he were to aim and toss a crumpled piece of paper towards a tiny rubbish bin across the stage, the likely outcome would be that he would come close but not make it. He crumpled the paper, he aimed, and he tossed the makeshift ball across the stage. It landed a few feet away from the basket. He went on to say that the idea behind Wu Wei would be that perhaps if he were completely present and simply just crumpled up the ball without effort and by an instantaneous notion were to just toss it in the air towards the basket without any concern of outcome, that it might indeed land inside the bin. My father started laughing at the thought as he expressed this. And in an impromptu beat, he turned back to the bin and said, well, I mean, of course, it's not going to happen now, but... And he tossed the ball through the air. The paper ball landed in the basket. Not a peep was heard from the class. It's as if it was being played out on an eternal loop of inevitability. My father reacted in amazement at the irony. Oh my God, it really happened. We caught eye contact for an instant. I was three years old. That was my second Satori. So now I'll skip to the end of this chapter, and this is the section from a section called Becoming a Party. The comic books from India that I grew up on depict a play of numerous characters. People, gods, goddesses, warriors, demons, anthropomorphic beings, and animals. The common theme throughout the stories of these Vedic and Hindu, Hindu traditions indicate a fluidity of manifestation between all realms of being. Life is expressed through wildly creative and innumerable variations. In this, you are an avatar of God, the original expression of a voice 
that may not be duplicated exactly as such. The mythic figure in a play that you are both creator of and player in. The actor whose duty it is to bring about the present moment. You are both the manifest and the manifestor, the indelible collaborator of new life. One Sunday night, when I was about seven years old, my father, my brother, and I were celebrating the night away at home in Hawaii. The smell and feel of every place we lived in with my father was specific. It was perhaps indicative of the influence India had had on him in the 1970s and 80s. Burning incense coupled with the smoke of marijuana and hashish. Indian music, distinct in its numerous chords and drums, melodic vocals and chanting. Glasses that smelled of gin, lime, tonic, and red wine. Aftershave and lighter fluid. Seared garlic and burnt curry. Wood carvings and stacks of old books and manuscripts that had subtly marinated and diffused all of those smells over many years. On this particular night, it was well after midnight, and we would be getting up very early in the morning to go to university with my father. We were up late playing cards and being silly as usual when my, father, when my father suggested that we go outside to see if we could spot Mars in the night sky. Just as we sighted the red planet peeking through the nebulous clouds, a tropical rain began pouring down. As we ran for the front door, we could hear its rhythmic tapping on the rooftop of the single-story house we were staying in. We had locked ourselves out of the house, and we had done so many times before. Prior to that, when I was about five years old, I was small enough to crawl through the doggy door and unlock the front door so that we could get back into the house. Since at this time I was seven, I could no longer fit. My father tried using a credit card to jimmy the door open. The alarm went off in full force. Oh, I don't believe it. You gotta be kidding, my father exclaimed. That you, you gotta be kidding. He was talking to was both himself and the it in It Is Raining, that rain that was pouring down on us, drenching us as we stood there in front of the house at almost one in the morning. The loud shrill of the alarm had us retreat to the edge of the street, to the corner of the property next door. The rain began pouring down even harder, monsoon-like. What are we going to do? My brother asked. My father, totally present and completely at a loss for ideas, exclaimed, Okay, junk in a poe to suggest a game of rock, paper, scissors. I don't understand, I said, as he and my brother threw their hands down to prompt the beginning of the game. Because, Sebastian, just do it, my brother said. And that's as good a reason as any. There we were, in the middle of the night, soaking wet, standing on the corner of the street, the alarm ringing through the neighborhood, Warm orange glow of the smoke-filled living room shining onto the driveway. The distant sound of Indian music under the whistling wind and beating rain melted the shrill of the alarm. And we gave ourselves up to the night, to each other, to all of life in the eternal moment, and to the eternal eye and the mystic vow. We played the game, and we became the party. <laughs> oh, how wonderful. Thanks so much, Jason, for having me on here. It's a pleasure. It's a privilege. It's genuinely an honor to be part of your show. Yes, thank you, brother. We'll do it again. Great. Excellent. Special shout out and thanks to Screaming Witness for the amazing intro and outro song. Check them out.